BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time in the Ben Jarowski show as I speak. It's Thursday, March 31st, 2022, the end of March. The Ides of March have gone, baby. It's now it's April Fools. Here's a headline from today's New York Times uh, that gives you a sense of what's going on in the world because, you know, you could be listening to this two years from now. So on March 31st, 2022, here's a headline in the New York Times. Orgies, drugs, GOP finally fed up with lawmakers' tales. Representative Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina uh, got in trouble with the Republican leadership uh, in the Congress because he said he was exposed to orgies or invitations to join orgies. The stuff that upsets Republicans. They are supporting a president, a former president, who's like, conducted criminal enterprise and they don't care about that but they're upset <laughs> Man, what a weird party all right that's what's in the news today without further ado i'm gonna ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself as i do with all distinguished guests so distinguished guest introduce yourself sure my name is anat shanker osorio and i am a communications researcher and campaign consultant and i'm the host of a podcast called words to win by which is all about campaigns that we have won around the world and the way that we got that done all right that's beautiful stuff and i want to give a shout out to my dear friend lenny lenny said uh she was on a, a call with you a conference call with you and not and she said she called me up she goes ben you've got to have a knot on your show this lady is really smart. You've got to have her on your show. So everybody knows I do whatever Lenny tells me, and uh, one thing led to another, and here you are. Uh, all right. Uh, so before we get into some of the messages, I have a whole list of them that I'd love to get your thoughts uh, on because this is one of my favorite themes, and I'm going to expose you to this, how my mind works. I am convinced uh, that the right, MAGA, Republicans, whatever you want to call them, have outfoxed the left, the Democrats, the liberals, the lefties, whatever you want to call them, uh, when it comes to optics, coining phrases, uh, just sort of like winning the mind games of Americans. One of my favorite pet themes is how all, even lefties, my beloved lefties talk about woke and political correct and cancel culture, uh, which even though, you know, like it's something that uh, the left does. So we've like absorbed their blow. So I want to get into this uh, with you a little bit. But before I do that, just introduce yourself a little bit to my listeners. We've not met you, not been on our show before. So how did it come in your life that you arrived at this point where you're doing this kind of work? Go ahead. Yeah. So my background and training is in cognition and linguistics, which means that I look deeply into why certain messages resonate and others don't. And I look at patterns in language that tell us, oh, when we, for example, use a metaphor that likens the economy to something naturalistic, like a body, the economy is healthy, it's unhealthy, it's thriving, we have a quote, recovery bill, as opposed to likening the economy to something mechanic. It's on the right track. It's on the wrong track. We have accelerating job losses. There's friction in the economy. 
that it actually alters not just people's perceptions of what this abstraction is, but their policy preferences. And that when folks are primed with certain kind of language, and then you ask them simple questions around, you know, do you prefer a flat tax or progressive taxation? Do you prefer wage hikes? Do you not, et cetera? You can alter their policy preferences on the basis of how you describe, in this case, the abstraction that is the economy. And that's just one example. But to take another really concrete one, the difference between asking people, for example, of their views on asylum seekers versus people seeking asylum, meaningfully different. And I could go on and on and on. And so I look at language analytically, and I formulate hypotheses around this kind of message seems pretty crappy, this kind of message seems like it would do better for us. And then I engage in qualitative and quantitative testing of all different sorts, which I'm happy to get into detail around to see whether that does indeed prove true. And then finally, after all of that, because what it took me a long time to learn, I'm embarrassed how long, is that all of the biases and heuristics that make it challenging to persuade or mobilize our voters, those are also present in our advocates and activists. Reverting back to habituation is a normal human instinct. And so even if you've been shown, oh, actually, it's much better to talk about this issue in this way, when it comes the moment to sit down and start talking or to type up a press release or to come up with a speech or to write a tweet or whatever kind of communication you're doing, you're going to revert back to what you've been habituated to say, even if you mean better. And so then I engage in longer term campaigns to actually take what we've figured out would be better messaging and help folks implement it by, you know, writing peer-to-peer texting scripts, by creating digital ads, memes, um, figuring out what the brand of the campaign should be, you know, literally what's going to be on people's shirts and hats and so on. So do you actually work for individual campaigns, for political campaigns and shaping their message? Yes, I do. And in that, I work in different configurations. It depends. I do not tend to work for individual candidates, at least not in the United States. I am a really, really big believer in organizing. And I believe that a message is like a baton that needs to be passed from person to person to person. And if it gets dropped anywhere along the way, it is by definition not persuasive. A message that nobody hears does not persuade them. And so my tendency is to work with, quote unquote, outside groups, which are usually coalitions of grassroots, faith-based, often labor unions, Sometimes the party of a state, for example, my home state of Wisconsin, I do a lot of work with the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, and I did in 2020. In 2020, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania were the focal states where I supported messaging. So tend to work with coalitions of groups and trying to get, if you'll allow the analogy, the choir to agree to sing from the same songbook, recognizing that if you know, this union has this message and Planned Parenthood has that message and, you know, this grassroots group has that message, it's going to be very hard to break a signal through the noise. So not did you come about this from the perspective of somebody who grew up in a, in a, a Republican household so you could see the visceral reaction that Republicans uh, had to the message that Democrats were putting out and then you realized how, from that, how uh, bad the Democrats uh, were putting out their message, or did you come at it from growing up in a Democratic household and you were frustrated with the inability of Dems to get their message across? Yeah, my storyline is definitely the latter. Um, I'm from a, uh, you know, we're Jewish, but I like to say that we're to the left of Jesus. I grew up in a very proudly progressive household. My parents, um, you know, pretty avowed socialists, grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, yeah, very, very much a lefty household, probably not as lefty as I presently am right now, because I've wandered even farther, both geographically, I live in California now, and attitudinally, ideologically. But I would say that beyond that formation, um, it's also just having studied how people reason and come to judgments and how language shapes and impacts that process. I think 
when you look at the way a lot of campaign communication is done, and I, I use campaign very broadly, that could be anything from a ballot initiative to a candidate to a campaign to change hearts and minds, let's say on something like um, raising the minimum wage, which is going to happen legislatively, or marriage equality to take you know a very quintessential example. When you look at how campaign messaging is crafted, all too often, it's sort of like sticking a finger in the wind and you ask people like, how'd you come up with that slogan or how'd you come up with that message? And, you know, people will even say things to me like, well, the URL was available. And I'm like, well, that must mean that it's very compelling if nobody felt like using it. I mean, that is a strong endorsement. And so when you come from a background of looking at language systematically and then also having done a lot of empirical work, and, you know, empiricism is the best possible cure for ego. I cannot tell you the number of times I have written a message and been like, this is genius. <laughs> and then, you know, if you subject yourself to daily, weekly focus groups and you watch Americans from all walks of life respond to that message with, you know, revulsion, confusion, laughter where you meant to be serious, seriousness where you meant to be humorous, on and on, you quickly sort of get stripped away from the feeling of your own genius. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. it sounded good to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. And, and listen, uh, before I start getting uh, asking questions to get, force you to get more specific, I, I must make a confession right now. I am the absolute worst in my humble opinion. And I say this as a guy who's been in the media since 19, I don't know, late 70s. Oh my goodness, am I old? I am the absolute worst at getting people who think one way to think my way because more and more I just lose patience. I start haranguing them. And one thing I've learned is that that doesn't work, but you know, I, I can't help myself. So I'm guilty as charged and I'm charging myself. All right. So you said something and I want you to get a little more specific about it. You said uh, reverting a tendency people have to revert back uh, to what you are habituated to say. Uh, and that is a, uh, a very interesting concept. I'd love you to, uh, dive into it a little bit more and explain what you mean and give an example or two of what, particularly when people on the left, when they, what are they reverting back to, uh, which they have been habituated to say, go ahead. Yeah. Um, let me start with an example from the immigrant rights space. So we have frequently been told or been exposed to this notion that we are going to find some sort of quote unquote uniquely American narrative that is going to be the way to frame the immigration debate. And so you can see that in immigrant rights messaging where there's the Statue of Liberty and people say America is a nation of immigrants and therefore we should welcome people coming here. America, you know, was founded and created by people coming from different places. That's an attempt to frame an argument to get people to the so therefore we ought to, you know, whatever it is, pass the DREAM Act and deportations, um, pass comprehensive immigration reform, whatever the call to action is going to be on the end. And what we find is that that nation of immigrant story, though we try to use it a lot and we've been trying to use it for a very long time, it's pretty much a disaster. And it's a disaster for a couple, for a few reasons. Number one, for African Americans, it can be incredibly insulting because it implies a volition that wasn't there. For Native Americans, it's incredibly off-putting for reasons I think are very obvious and I don't need to outline. And then thirdly, and this is what most people don't recognize, it's not actually rooted in the lived experience of most of our target audience. So most Americans were born in this country, and most of the people that we need to persuade toward immigrant rights do not have the personal experience of having immigrated. They were born here. And so what that means is that when you are using a nation of immigrants framing, what you are doing is you're bringing nationalism top of mind. You are asking people implicitly to think through the lens of their identity as an American and from that place to make a judgment about whether or not we ought to do this progressive policy around immigrants. 
And so in an experiment in which we do a split sample test, meaning half the sample gets the formulation one way, the other half the other way, and the samples are large enough that they're sort of identical and we can draw conclusions across them. Half the sample gets what we call a forced choice question between a conservative proposition. No one can help everyone and we need to look after our own people first. Versus as Americans, we need to be welcoming and kind to those people who come here seeking asylum or as refugees. And you're seeing which beats it out. And then the second half of the sample gets the identical right-wing formulation. No one can help everyone. We have to look after our own people first. But instead of getting, as Americans, we need to do X, Y, Z, we say to them, as caring people, we need to do X, Y, Z. So essentially, it's a test of which one beats the conservative idea. Is it as Americans, we ought to do X, Y, Z, or as caring people, we ought to do X, Y, Z? There's no contest. The latter is much, much more effective by 10 points, 12 points, it depends which time we've tested it, 15 points, at beating the opposition proposition. Nationalism is not our friend. So attempting to, to make an immigrant rights argument from anything that sort of makes your listener think first and foremost of themselves as an American, as opposed to a human being, is not that helpful. And so what does that mean? Sorry, this is a long example. It means that where nation of immigrants is not an effective message, a message about moving, the same is true today has been throughout history. People move. It's hard to move. To pack up everything and go to a new place takes courage, but you do it to put food on the table or to get your kids into a better school. Immigrant Americans move here for the promise of freedom and opportunity in this country. America's supposed to be the land of the free and the home of the brave, and that's a good thing, so let's make it that way. So a people move message taps into a lived experience that most of your audience has had, because though they haven't immigrated, chances are much higher they've moved, even if it's across town, and so they can understand that. So that's an example. I can give another one, but that was pretty long. Well, all right, let's let's just take the deep dive into. The, uh, let me respond to your example, which is a fascinating one, because your what you said runs counter to the reigning uh, worldview of the people who design the Democratic Party's message. And how you say, do I know that? Well, thank you for asking that question, uh, even though you didn't really, and I did, uh, I, because I've spent my entire lifetime listening to the democratic message that is being sent out. I watch all their conventions. I just talk about the convention and what they do is they wrap themselves in the flag and they do that. I'm, I think in part as a reaction to Republicans saying that the Democrats are un-American. This goes back and really like in our life, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this 1972, George McGovern ran, he got crushed by uh, Richard Nixon, one of the, biggest landslides in the history of presidential elections and the democratic party, uh, in the aftermath led by people like Bill Clinton, et cetera, and so forth said, we will never let that happen again. We are going to be there every bit as much the party of America as the Republicans. And so every single, uh, proclamation from the official democratic party or not is just got the flag draped all over it, linked to America as though the Democrats were more patriotic and American than the Republicans. And what you're telling me right now is going counter to that. You're saying, actually, it would be a more effective messaging if you distance your message from a, the American flag or the country of America and you made it more universal. Am I understanding you correctly? You're understanding me to be clear on immigration. Immigration is a particular issue in which, by definition, what differentiates the native-born person and the person who has immigrated here is country of origin. Like, that, that's the seminal difference between them. And so we can't say blanket, like, there is no role for draping yourself in the flag. There is to a certain degree. But in an issue like immigration, where kind of that is the, um, that's the core of it, 
is really how are you going to build empathy across this very specific difference? And are you going to try to do that by calling that difference unconsciously to mind? And what the testing shows is that that's a bad maneuver. But let me give you a different example because it plays straight into what you're saying. It is a right-wing wet dream to get Democrats to argue from a right-wing perspective. Because by definition, if you tacitly agree to wander onto your opposition's turf and have an argument from there, you're going to lose every time. And so let me just give you a super simple example. When we ask voters in survey after survey, who, which party is better for, quote, the economy? Now, we know what's actually true on the basis of actual economic data, but facts never got in the way of perception, and they don't do that now. And so overall, the brand perception is that Republicans are the party of being, quote, good for the economy, and Democrats are not. When we ask instead, who, which party is better for your economic well-being, Democrats have the brand advantage. What do people actually care more about? They actually care more about their own economic well-being, pardon, than this abstract concept, the economy, which, by the way, is a fiction, right? It's a convention by which we measure human activity. The economy has never taken you out to dinner. It doesn't actually exist. It's a concept that's very important. But what people care about more, I've never met anybody who gets up in the morning and is like, I'm just, I'm going to check how the GDP is doing because I'm just real passionate about the GDP, right? Outside of, you know, some people on the Council of Economic Advisors, sure, like those weirdos, but I mean, in the aggregate among Americans. And so fast forward to how did we get baited over and over again? Like the, the examples are infinity. When we argue, for example, about raising wages, and we confine ourselves to a right-wing argument, and they say we say, we should raise wages because it'll help grow the economy. Raising wages because we have a consumer-driven economy will increase how much spending people can do, and you know that circulates through the economy, blah, 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 blah. When we test that kind of message, what's going on with that message is that we are tacitly reaffirming to people that the purpose of public policy is to grow GDP. When instead we say, no matter what we look like, where we come from, or what we do for a living, most of us believe that people who work for a living ought to earn a living. And corporations who are minting a fortune off the wealth our work creates need to be giving us a fair return on that work. When we instead make an argument that is situated from the vantage point, and this was the lesson of the fight for 15. The fight for 15 wasn't just about actually naming that quote unquote audacious ha 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 demand. It was also about changing the framing of why we need wage hikes away from this quote practical argument that it will be good for the economy to basically calling bullshit on that and saying, no, if you work for a living, you ought to earn a living. And corporations are sitting on billions because they've taken the money that we created. And so over and over and over again, what happens to Democrats is they get baited into this idea because the way that they conduct public opinion research, sorry, this is one of my many soapboxes, is they look at message testing in order to take the temperature. And Republicans conduct message testing in order to change it. Let me give you a concrete example. However many months ago, I no longer remember because time has lost all meaning during the pandemic, but before the name on everyone's lips was critical race theory, we tested it, they tested it, we asked folks, you know, what is critical race theory? Are you upset about it? And what did people say? I, I, I don't know what that is. I have no idea what that is. I've never heard of that. I am neither upset about it or not. In our focus groups, people were as likely to say, is that when you're critical of people talking about race? Or is that when, like people were guessing, does it mean the opposite? Like no clue, right? Because unlike a phrase like say death panels, which on the face of it, like, I don't know what death panels are, but that sounds bad. Like, I know that's bad. 
critical race theory didn't even have a negative valence. And so right-wing pollsters, they test that. And what do they say? They say, great, we have an empty vessel. We have a phrase that is largely absent of meaning for people. We will turn it into a pus-filled cancerous tube. And we will make meaning by lying about what it's about in order to use this as a wedge issue. Democrats, in contrast, they attempt to approach political messaging like the infamous game theory hot dog vendor problem, where they're trying to figure out what does the median voter want? Well, newsflash, every single electorate is different. Different people participate in every election. And so by definition, there is no median voter because in order to have a median voter that is the same, you would have to have the same set of people. And you don't. So this is fascinating. And you're on a roll. And uh, Lenny, thank you. All right. This is good. <laughs> all right. All right. So let's go back uh, to critical race theory. So I, I, you're preaching to the choir on this one. I've my whole life I've watched Republicans do this, okay, and they're really good at it. And I got I tip my hat to them, even though I despise the outcome of what they're doing. Uh, all right. So, in your humble opinion, now that the Dems have allowed the Republicans, now that the left has allowed the right to turn critical race theory, a concept that very few on either side really understand. But they have allowed the Republicans to turn it into a weapon that the Republicans can use to hammer the hell out of Democrats. What can the Democrats do in response? Yeah, it's actually really not that hard because it turns out that what they're doing is actually not that popular. I know it doesn't look that way. Because the other thing that the right wing understands is that social proof is real. People do the thing they think people like them do. And so when they witness angry, vitriolic parents in school board meetings, and those parents kind of sort of look like them, they're like, huh, I guess this is what people like me think and want. But in point of fact, what survey after survey after survey show us is that number one, most Americans, by large margins, actually want children taught the truth of our past, both the good and bad of our history, and that book bans in particular, which is the obvious counter wedge issue, the way for us to go on offense, are wildly unpopular. It's around 87% of people hate book bans. So what is that message? I'm going to craft it for you on the fly so it's not going to be copy edited. So with that caveat. No matter what we look like or where we come from, most of us want our kids to be taught the truth about our past so they can understand our present and create a better future. But today, a handful of Republicans, or but today, XYZ, if you're running against a specific person and you name them, spread lies about what our teachers are teaching, hoping we'll look the other way while they keep stealing resources from our schools and trying to silence any kind of views that don't reinforce their power. They want to turn us against each other because they know that if we stand together, we can demand the quality schools for every child that we would want for our own. So basically, it's a three-part structure. You first say what you're for, say what you're for, say what you're for. And if people forget everything else that happened in this conversation, and that's all you remember, that's really the most critical point. And that is a place where the left falls down all the time. I like to joke that if I had to summarize left-wing messaging, not just in the US, but I work globally, it would be, boy, have I got a problem for you. <laughs> this is the Titanic. Would you like to buy a ticket? And... We lost recently. We're the losing team. Would you like to join us? Those are That's basically the left-wing message. And it turns out that that doesn't really work. If you want people to come to your cause, you have to actually be attractive, which means that first, you have to tell people what you're for, what kind of, in this case, education you want. And so that's why 
effective messages begin by stating a shared value. And then second, not first, that's where you name the problem. The problem is not the opening salvo. It's not hello. It's the second sentence. And you name that problem highlighting what the opposition is doing to stoke deliberate division or to scapegoat, to shame and blame some group of people in order to get us to turn on each other so that we don't have the strength and numbers we require to have the lives we all want. Then you seal the deal with a closing sentence, which is an affirmation of cross-racial solidarity, of standing together across race, across gender, across place, across whatever wedge issue they've stuck in in that middle. Could be racial, could be trans kids, could be abortion. You know, it's a potpourri of dog whistles for them. Like, take their pick. You seal the deal by reaffirming that shared value and coming to this, you know, we're the many can defeat the money when the many stand united. All right. Uh, so let's again make it even more specific, uh, because when I'm listening to you uh, with your uh, suggestions, I'm reminded of what I say many times in this podcast uh, when I'm interviewing people on this and it's this, it's a sports, uh, analogy. And I don't know if you're a sports fan, but I'll use it anyway. I use it all the time. Uh, coming up with concepts, uh, for how to deal with Republican tactics in the abstract is like going into a gym and shooting jump shots when nobody's covering you. And it sounds great in the abstract. And when you're in the gym alone, shooting jump shots, and no one's got their hand in their, in your face or is kicking at your legs, like, or, or like, uh, your beloved Milwaukee bucks do illegally push you and cheat to win. Uh, so I just stuck that in there for all the cheese heads out there. Anyway. Uh, so the point is in a real contest, not the Republicans are in your face. It's very real. They're trying to push you off your message. Uh, it's not a laboratory where you've isolated all the competing forces, to put it mildly. So we just saw this in play. Oh, we've got there's so many examples. Florida, DeSantis, when he signed the uh, Don't Say Gay bill, had a, par- <laughs> a battery of kids behind him that he gave the pens to. I don't know if you saw this. It's just unbelievable. And, he, and they presented it not as anti-gay, but as parental rights. Was, we're standing up for parental rights. Parents should not should have the say over when their child first hears about concepts of sexuality. Not some teacher in a school should not be the one to make that determination. When uh, Ted Cruz was trying to rally opposition to Katanji Brown Jackson, he held up the racist baby book and he started reading from it. Do you believe babies are racist? And she was put on the defensive right there. So what's your recommendation to messaging when you're not in the laboratory, but you're in the, on the playing field and they're in your face? Yeah. I'm so glad you raised that. And I am not a sports person. So funny enough, I have a way of referencing the exact same thing. And my reference is politics is not solitaire. Same concept. And the reason why the formula that I presented to you, which can be reduced to values, villain, vision, that's the ordering and the sort of, that's the one, two, three, is that that's the the middle statement, the one that's about scapegoating or deliberate division or what the right wing is doing. That is actually precisely because when we do our message formulation and testing, and then when we actually implement it in the field, it's precisely because politics is not solitaire and our voters don't just hear from us. They hear unrelentingly from the other side. And one of the horrendous mistakes that Democrats have made over and over and over and over again is believing that we can just not talk about race. We just won't talk about race. We'll just talk about popular issues. We'll talk about economics. That is a fiction. Because if we are silent about race, if we are silent about sexuality, if we are silent about trans kids, the only thing that our voters hear are the unrelenting dog whistles, invectives, hatred, scapegoating, scaremongering. You know, it 
this is their playbook. This is the quote Southern strategy. I mean, they laid it all out. Lee Atwater literally said, this is the deal. You have to, you know, starting out 1950, you could say N-word, 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 and then that would backfire. And so now you need to say things like forced busing and states' rights. And eventually, fast forward, and shame on Democrats because they've done it too, quote, welfare queens, right? Law and order, not coming in the right way. Don't believe in our way of life. Things have gone, women have simply gone too far. That's a wolf whistle, not a dog whistle. They speak unrelentingly in this coded speech, which telegraphs to their audiences, hey, I'm talking to you about race, but they get, quote, plausible deniability because they're like, I never brought up race. What race? I just said welfare queens. Where was, you know, I just said illegal immigrant. And of course, when they say illegal immigrant, they mean the Swedish backpacker who overstayed their visa. That's what that phrase means, right? These are all deeply racialized phrases that we all know, right? When any one of us hears, quote, illegal immigrant, you know exactly what comes to your mind. And you are lying to me if you are saying it's a tall blonde. That's not what's happening in your brain. So precisely because of what you've said, the messages that we create are have that middle step of being a pushback to what the other side is saying. And so you know, in the case of the Florida bill, for example, and they're talking about parents' rights, you say most of us across race, place, and zip code in this state believe every single one of our kids should have the freedom to thrive, to be in quality schools that respect them for who they are, and to have the freedom to know and understand all that they can become. But today, DeSantis, or but today, Florida Republicans, want to divide us against each other, exploiting fear or lack of familiarity with different kinds of kids and families, hoping we'll look the other way while they take the resources that our schools require and expose our kids to this deadly virus by lying about masks and vaccines. They think that if they can get us to fear each other, we won't notice that they're handing kickbacks to corporations standing in the way of the care, respect, and services all of us need, whatever our genders, whoever we love, whatever our households. We're on to them and we choose each other. So you have to name what they're doing and you have to ascribe motivation behind it. Not just say this is what they're doing, but the reason for it is because they need us divided. They need us distracted. They need us, you know, sometimes I shorthand this as point your finger at the bad guy, not the brown guy. As long as they've convinced you that Juan took your job, you won't notice that Jeff Bezos took your job. Because excuse me, Juan is sitting in front of Home Depot trying to collect some day labor. And last time I looked, he didn't have a lot of say over public policy. He really didn't get to make any legislation. In fact, they won't even let him vote. And so the notion that that is the reason why you are hard up, I mean, this is a global phenomenon. This is the oldest trick in the political book. It is the manipulation of status threat. And it is what Bolsonaro uses. It is what Duterte uses. It is what Boris Johnson uses now and what fueled Brexit. It is Orban in Hungary. I could go on and on and on. There's nothing new under the sun, right? This is no different than what fed and bred the Holocaust. It is to choose some group and to say they're the ones so that you can get away with the spoils. And unless and until we link together the use of these frequently racialized, but not just race, invectives with the ability to screw all of us economically, we're not going to be able to build the cross-racial solidarity that we require to actually overcome this. And that's why this fiction that we can just not talk about race is completely ridiculous because the not talking about it doesn't make the conversation go away. It makes the only thing people hear these dog whistles. Mm. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, by the way, I would, uh, 
I would say uh, I would uh, change a bit, uh, would, uh, or I would challenge you on one point. Let's put it that way. So uh, if I'm having an argument or debate uh, with a person of the MAGA persuasion, uh, and I hear them um, uh, releasing uh, dog whistles on the issue of race, I'll talk, wolf, talk about welfare queens, for instance, and I say, it, that's that's a dog whistle. You're just trying to say black people. You're trying to exploit racial uh, hostilities and fears, et cetera, and so forth. The response, if they're a trained MAGA puppet, which most of them are, the response, which I know, will be, man, you can't talk about anything anymore. That's cancel culture, a woke culture that has canceled my right to talk about welfare. I can't, I didn't say anything. It's cancel culture. You've canceled my culture. And this is the part that really gets me. And not so many liberals will be nodding their heads. <laughs> talk about trained seals. You know, yeah, I heard Bill Maher talking about this on his show the other day. Cancel culture. We all perpetuate cancel culture. And I'm like, wow, they brainwashed even the liberals. Because who's banning the books? In America today, uh, uh, not who I don't see any liberals banning books. Do you follow what I'm saying? Who's doing the culture canceling in in America today? So Republicans get away on two fronts. One, they do it, and then two, they have convinced society that the other side is doing it. So here's go ahead. You're yeah. So I think it's possible that maybe because I got so impassioned, um, I introduced confusion. There's a difference between the phenomenon I was describing and the message I was recommending. I wouldn't recommend that you say to that, first of all, let's just say something. The purpose of strategic communications is to engage the base and persuade the middle. When you have someone in the committed opposition, there's actually really not that much to be gained to talking to them. Like they're never going to vote for you anyway. And your job in your limited minutes and, you know, aggravation amount that you can withstand in this lifetime is to either turn out your base or to persuade the people that you can persuade. If someone is sort of like diehard hat wearing MAGA, like what are you talking to them about? So from a political perspective, that's sort of dubious. I understand maybe because they're in your family and you need to talk to them. I get that. But if you're talking to somebody who is center-right, you know, right-ish, maybe a soft Trump or whatever, you think that they're still gettable. Like there, there's a reason. I was not suggesting that you actually tell them, oh, that's a dog whistle. What I would say to that person, oh, they've said to me, oh, welfare queens and they're abusing the system. What I would say to that person is like, you know, I hear you. I'm super frustrated. I think like you at just how hard it feels like my family's working. It sounds like your family's working and we just can't even get ahead. But it seems to me when I look at who is scoring major bank right now, like who's rolling in it? I don't know, but I'm seeing billionaires. I'm seeing people whose fortunes have actually, they're profiting off this pandemic. So I'm looking at who's rolling in the cash and I'm wondering, huh, they're telling me it's some money that was collected for food stamps. They're telling me, I mean, I don't know about you, but I know plenty of people and, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit I myself, like I've struggled from time to time. I've needed help. I know lots of people do. I think it's a tough life. You know, the world's not, the world, life is tough. And I know plenty of people who have need to, needed to get by, whether it's, you know, their church or the kindness of friends or yeah, some sort of support. And seems to me that in the richest country on earth, we should be seeing kids going hungry. And when I look at where all that money is going and I see those people who refuse to pay what they owe, either in wages or taxes, and paying off politicians to rewrite the rules to do their bidding. I'm not really trying to be blaming people who are getting some welfare and just trying to feed their families. Seems to me like we all need to be united looking at the real villains. Like, that's what you say to them. You don't say, you're falling for a racist trope that is actually, you know, a <laughs> speech. You yeah. narrate the fact that they're using a dog whistle but you don't actually overtly express that. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And uh, the concept of strategic uh, communication in order uh, to engage your base and persuade the middle uh, is a sound one, which I'll keep in the back of my mind as I move forward in life. Uh, more often than not, I find myself just <laughs> joining the fray, uh, if you will. And uh, you're basically essentially saying, well, that's a waste of time. Uh, yeah, but I, I still... Yeah. Uh, I still would like to hear your thoughts about how uh, this very specific issue about uh, how effectively uh, the right uh, has turned the concept of cancel culture uh, into a tool today, which I see are all around. It's, it's another example. I mean, there's countless examples. Parental rights is one. Liberty in regard to masks is another. Uh, you know, uh, protecting the unborn uh, in regards uh uh, to abortion is another, but your thoughts on cancel culture uh, as a tool uh, in this day and age? Yeah, totally in agreement with you on every dimension, both the obvious, you know, what you rightly said, that if you are engaged in a reality-based perspective, you know that the attempts to censor speech, to stop people, to block people, to um, to police what can be said and how it can be said and to police how people can live, how their families. I mean, you know, now they're talking about getting rid of interracial marriage. My husband's like, are you freaking kidding me? Like you're not allowed to marry who you want to marry. Like that doesn't sound like freedom to me. Um, not being able to actually pay for your kids dental work. Like that doesn't sound like freedom to me. Right. If you can't actually make it through the day and make ends meet and be with your family and care for them. And I don't know, once in a while, take a, vacation like that doesn't sound like freedom to me so number one obviously you know in terms of who is constraining every kind of freedom it's them not us always has been and then specifically on the point of us parroting their language share with you the disgust and disdain for that and why we would ever do that, you know, it's just a more particular and a particularly noxious example of what we were talking about earlier, which is agreeing to have their conversation, which we should never do. We should never agree to have their conversation. That is a ridiculous thing to do. We have to have our own conversation. And so what are the choices? The choices are either you rename it, you rename it something like consequence culture, because you still want to harken back to the original phrase so that people want to do that, or you do a more significant reframe and you say, most of us go through life trying to respect each other and to treat others the way that we wish we would be treated. But today, the MAGA faction is peddling fear and hatred, is trying to turn everyday Americans against their neighbors. Because they know if they divide us up by what we look like, what language we speak, what our families are, you know, who we love, that we won't have the strength and numbers we require to pass the policies every one of us needs. They know that their ideas are wildly unpopular, that we want common sense gun safety protections in our communities that we want childcare that's subsidized for every one of our kids, that we want quality of schools we're excited for our loved ones to attend. Almost all of us agree on all of that. And so the only way for them to claim and hold power is to pick some group and say, they're the source of your troubles. But we're on to them. And we're gonna stand with and for each other and choose new leaders who believe in making this a place of liberty and justice for all, no exceptions. It's that kind of a pushback where you actually, instead of parroting the phrase cancel culture, you actually say, hey, look, here's here's what they're selling you and here's why they're selling it. All right. Very good. We've run out of time. Uh, I could continue this conversation or not with about for at least another hour with more examples. Uh, if folks want to hear your podcast or they want to, uh, uh, see, get more information about you, where can they turn to? Yeah. So we have a website. It's a S O communications dot 
calm and we are super open source. We believe if your words don't spread, they don't work. And that means that all the messaging research that we do, we negotiate with our clients to be able to make it public. That means that there's messaging guides on everything under the sun, how you talk about criminal justice, how you talk about education, how you push back on critical race theory. So messaging guides, we also have ads that we've run um, that have done incredibly well uh, through randomized control trial testing. We, and then as far as the podcast, there's a link to it from my site, but there is also a website for the podcast. Um, It's words to win by pod.com. And you can listen to it anywhere that you, you know, if you're an Apple person, if you're a Spotify person, if you're a, I don't know all the other names of the things, but it's on all those things, words to win by. And if nothing else, they are good stories that are also stories of good. And so they are a arguably much needed dose, not of empty optimism. It's not claptrap hope. It's literally like, hey, this is how folks won abortion in Ireland. This is how Jacinda Ardern in six weeks went from on a dime being the candidate because Andrew Little dropped out. Um, He was the head of labor in New Zealand. And suddenly she was the candidate and there were six weeks to run an election. Here's how. This is how we won Wisconsin in 2020. This is how we won across races in Minnesota in 2018. This is how we got police reform in Washington state in 2018 as well. So they are concrete, like, this is what we did. This is how we did it. Stories of wins. All right. Very good. Thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, and one more time, thanks to Lenny for uh, hooking us up. I appreciate you, Lenny, very much. Uh, that's Nat uh, Shanker uh, Osorio. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.